Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Sully's Open Conversation, the show that aims to have an unfamiliar conversation in a familiar environment. As always, I am your host Sully and today I'm joined with Mike McCarthy. Welcome Hi. Mike. Hi Sully. <laughs> so I've taken the drive up to Sheffield um, to come and see Mike, um, who we were put in touch with a couple of months ago I'd say. Yeah, we sort of got a mutual friend, friend yeah, contact, yeah, yeah. hadn't we? Yeah, and, and yeah that's how we, got we and, yeah. met each other. Um, but if you'd like to introduce yourself, go ahead. Yeah, okay, to camera. Go for it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, yep, yeah. well, I'm Mike McCarthy, and um, I'm a former journalist. I'm a, a husband, dad, uh, to two kids. And, um, yeah, lived in Sheffield for quite a long time. My family uh, grew up here. The kids grew up here. And uh, it, this is my home, and uh, it's a city that I really love. And uh, I always look forward to coming back when I go away uh, on uh, trips uh, here, there, and everywhere. And um, yeah, as a journalist, uh, I've sort of covered wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, terrorist atrocities, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing in the States, the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. Um, way back, um, the Hillsborough disaster, for example. Um, so, yeah, it's been a fairly uh, intense and, and challenging career. Wow, it's very impressive, very yeah. impressive. An extensive portfolio. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a war reporter, though. It's, uh, you know, there were other people who were far better at it than, than I ever was, but I did get sent to situations wow. like that. Probably because they thought I was dispensable. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's absolutely fantastic, Mike. So the, the way that we like to sh start the show is if you could name a positive experience that you have heard, seen or done recently. Uh, so many, actually. Um, I run a few talking groups for men in Sheffield, one based at Sheffield United, the Sheffield United ground, one based at the Sheffield Wednesday ground. And um, on Monday night at the Sheffield Wednesday ground one of the footballers one of the first team players came down to talk to us at uh, talk club and it was really interesting to hear a footballer who is well paid very much admired seen very much as a, a role model uh, particularly to men come down and be so open and honest about his own mental health and he was talking to us about the pressures on footballers and how there's a fear of not getting picked on Saturday Wow, if yeah. you talk about your mental health. Oh, really? Yeah, because it sort of yeah. indicates to the manager that you're not as fit as, as uh, you know, as, uh, and not as focused. Um, so to, to hear Will, won't mind me using his name, Will Vaux, um, it was just so kind of uplifting to, to see a guy like that uh, be so open. And the other men in the group took a lot of, uh, inspiration, inspiration from it, yeah. I think. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. so that was. And it shines a different perspective, actually, because you don't usually hear professional athletes speaking about their troubles and, 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 and the experiences that they go through. Absolutely not. And normally, when they do speak about it, it's after their career's over. Yes. So, it's yeah. from the safety, if you like, of retirement. Um, I mean, you know, that's not to say that a lot of people in various sports have been very. Um, I'm going to say the word brave. I mean, it shouldn't be that you have to be brave, but in the current climate, I think it is quite brave of yeah. them. However, when you look at uh, sportsmen and women who are um, currently, you know, professionals and working professionals, as it were, 
very, very few of them will talk about their, their yeah. mental health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly when they're actually playing the sport. 100%, sure. Yeah, 100%. exactly. Yeah. Um, so the question I also like to ask to start with, which is very important, is how have you been mentally recently? Uh, it varies enormously. Um, I lost my son, Ross, as you know, to suicide last February. And um, since then, it's been a very, very difficult and traumatic uh, road that we've had to follow. Um, lately, I've been kind of okay, but it's a daily thing, you know. And I suppose, you know, here we are, what, 21 months later or whatever it is, and I'm, I'm, I think my state of mind at the moment is trying to accept that this is eternal grief, yeah. that this isn't going to go away, that things will change. And as people always say to me who, who've been in this situation, that your life grows around the grief. Uh, it doesn't get any smaller, but your life grows around it. And um, it probably sounds a bit strange, but I think, you know, um, the realisation that he's not coming back, I'm never going to see him again, I'm never going to talk to him again, in a way accepting that is maybe part of the healing for me um but peace. it kind of brings a bit of peace really doesn't it yeah in a strange it, way in it, a strange way it does i mean you know if you if you're in a situation and you know you're kind of antagonistic towards it or want to get away from it there's always that pressure i think with this uh horrible though it is you know if you kind of accept that this is the way it is then you can move on with other things, I think, you know, yeah. but uh, acceptance is one thing, but it doesn't obviously make it any easier. Of course, yeah. of course. Um, it's, yeah, is it, I, I've, I've, of course, have had conversations with you before and, yeah. and you've told me the story, but for those that may not know you or, or know your story, would you mind kind of covering a little bit of, of, of Ross and, and your experience? Yeah, sure. Um, I had retired and... Um, you know, was looking back on what I thought was a you know decent career. Uh, made my mistakes, but managed to escape relatively unscathed. <laughs> and uh, kind of looking forward to retirement. You know, everybody always says happy retirement. You know, happiness goes with retirement. And um, so, yeah, that that's the position, broadly speaking, that's the position I was in. And, uh, you know, I sometimes look back to the 20th of February when I went to bed and closed my eyes. <sighs> Did I, did I count my blessings, you know, that for all the sort of good things that I've got? Uh, you know, I've got a wonderful family. I've uh, been with my wife for 40 years. Amazing. And um, very, very proud of the kids. I'm proud of the kids. And, um, yeah, it's just so lucky. And, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not that I didn't cherish my life. I just didn't cherish it enough, I think. And, um, yeah, the phone went up half past three uh, in the morning and it was Ross's fiance uh, ringing to say that she'd found it's okay she'd found Ross in the hallway and that uh, it wasn't looking good uh, that the ambulance crew were there and she'd call us back as soon as you know there'd been any kind of sort of um, definitive word from the ambulance crew and um, we got a call five minutes later to say that um, that Ross had died and uh, so we packed our bags uh, got in the car and drove a couple of hours to 
Ross's house. It's like a February night. I don't remember much about the journey. But, um, yeah, we, we got there and Ross had gone, his body had gone, and uh, he'd, he'd written a letter, uh, a long sort of farewell letter, um, that had been taken away by the police. That's um, it was just so hard because I don't know. It just um, the way I describe it is like um, falling through darkness, just space, or you know, featureless something. You know, mm. just falling, 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 and that sort of panicking feeling that you were never ever going to touch the ground. Um, and that's you know, I remember sort of getting to the house, and then it was almost until I got to the house. Um, it, it kind of hadn't happened, uh, if that makes it sense. Doesn't feel real, sort of. Yeah, the, getting to Ross's house, sort of the reality hit me. Um, for example, I walked into the living room and he'd got a, a picture frame with two pictures in it, and one one of the pictures was me and Ross at a, like a little farm when he was a boy and he was holding a duckling, and uh, and next to it he'd got a picture of uh, himself with his own son and Charlie. Son, I've got a duckling. The two pictures together, it just sort of immediately, I don't know, just time and generations and, you know, the fleeting nature of, of life. And just, I just fell to the floor. I just fell to the floor, you know. And uh, so, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anyone would like to or would ever want to have that kind of experience. Um, and it's just a massive credit to you all to be so perseverant and, and resilient in a situation that, I mean, I've almost been on the other side of it. And sure. of course my parents were very scared, and but I was very fortunate and they were fortunate as well. And it's difficult to be on one side and the other side. So hearing, yeah. hearing that side, which I don't usually strangely get to hear very often, yeah. Yeah. it's just, you can't put it into words really, you can't. No, no, and it's, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I talk about it and I try to be as open as I possibly, well, there are a few reasons. Um, one is that, you know, I spent my life trying to persuade people to talk on camera, sometimes when they were going through very difficult, traumatic times. And um, I kind of think that, you know, having been that person, I can't now not sort of behave in the way that I've always expected people or try to, you know, ask people to, to be. And the other thing is that the letter, when we finally got it back, um, it was about a week before we managed to get the, the hold of the letter, which wow. was difficult in itself. Yeah. Um, but when we got it, uh, Ross, there was one sentence that um, stayed with me. It's, it's all stayed with me, but this one sentence in particular, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. Um, and what Ross meant by that is that um, he'd suffered with severe depression um, for over 10 years. He'd gone to the NHS to try to arrange some therapy, and they put him on a six-month waiting list, and he died two weeks into the wait. And um, when I eventually sort of managed to, you know, get anywhere close to picking myself up, um, I did a lot of research. You know, I'm a journalist, so I did a lot of research. Uh, around the whole area uh, because I wanted to honour what was effectively Ross's dying wish, please fight for mental health. And um, 
I discovered that this was quite a common story, that this was not an unusual story. That in itself is just shocking, really. Ah, it, it's sort of it's difficult for me to put it into into words just how massive this is. The magnitude of this issue is yeah. immense, and I always sort of liken it to it's almost as though there's some invisible gas out there, and people are falling to the floor, and we're just stepping over them and pretending not to notice. Yeah, because and again. You know, I know people are saying this now at the moment more and more, thank goodness, but I'm going to say it again. It is the biggest killer of under 35s in the UK. Um, not COVID, not cancer, not road accidents, not drugs, suicide. So my question now is, where's the conversation? Where's the political debate? Where are the talks in the classroom? Where's the public discourse about this? You know, it's just where's not, the up, not where's there. The, where, where, where's the real movement? Because, I mean, you, you say it's the biggest killer of under 35s. The highest suicide rate in the UK is men aged 45 to 50. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They're not under 35. That's the generation that we're taught. You can't talk about your emotions. Mm -hmm. You weren't told how to. And if you did, it was a sign of weakness. And especially for men in kind of the, the, the society that we've grown up in, generalised as the kind of breadwinner, feeding the family sort of, sort of yeah. stuff. They had to stay strong in that. They had to stay strong. Yeah, yeah. That's not obviously the case at all. And it's so important that we do talk about our emotions, our thoughts, what we're going through, what is stressful, what is really taking a toll on our mind. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has mental health. Everyone has it. Not everyone has mental illness. No, no. That's not at all what I'm saying, but mental health can be good and bad. This is a conversation that I had recently, is that someone was interchangeably using mental health and mental illness in the same sentences. That's not, that's not right. No, I, the, the whole language around it, and, and I'm just going to pick you up yeah, on yeah. one point there. Uh, you, you said, you know, men have got to be strong. Well, I think vulnerability is it's strength. strength. I I know exactly Definitely, what you're saying because that's the way that it was it was regarded. Yeah, that's the societal pressure. Exactly, exactly. But you know, vulnerability is strength, and you know, you look at somebody like let's let's say for example the world heavyweight boxing champion Tyson Fury, proven himself to be one of the fittest guys physically on the planet, but not afraid to talk about his uh, the vulnerability in terms of his his mental well being, um, and to me that is strength. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm hoping to do my little bit towards is just turning that prism a little bit. So we see things in a slightly different way or even sometimes a radically different way. Yeah. But let me, you know, for example, if someone is self-harming, you know, let's just stop saying that they are attention seeking. That, uh, yeah, know. that is totally out of the question. Uh, it, it's attention needing, you know. And I, I, uh, uh, if you have so much pain that you are prepared to do something like that, then you know you need attention. Mm -hmm. You're not seeking You're attention. Not seeking it, you, you need, need it. attention. That's, and there that's are lots really of things like that, you know, and especially around men. You, you mentioned this sort of whole thing around men. Lots of language that you know uh, uh, used to describe the model of masculinity in the 21st in the 21st century. Um, like you know, I always think strong, silent type. Who decided to put those two words together? Strong and silent. So that silence is a strength. It's absolutely not. You know, and um, so, yeah, I talk about this sort of quite a lot because um, 
one of the things that I wanted to do, apart from talking all the time, so, <laughs> um, that we very much enjoy. You've got a very, very good. <laughs> no, thank you. It's sort of. Um, I was paid to talk as a, <laughs> as a journalist in, in broadcast news, so uh, it's an old habits die hard and all that. Um, but no, I wanted to do something practical as well, so we set up these two talking groups in Sheffield, where I live. Um, yeah, and, and that that is for men. Three quarters of the people who take their lives are men. And um, it's great to see that working. It's great to see that, you know, what I'm saying actually does work. I've, I've, I see the results of it. So it's you, it's especially the talking clubs I love is because it's creating and enabling an environment that is safe and supportive for men to talk about it. Because if it is in a general setting, sometimes out of coffee or something, it might be too social. But if you know you're going there <coughs> to specifically talk about that one thing, yeah. people just let, them, let themselves yeah. open up, yeah. don't they? And it's amazing because you hear so often, oh, mental health, you know, um, it's so complex. The reasons for suicide are so complex, and they are mm -hmm. and can be. Mm -hmm. But actually, there's one thing that I, you know I slightly disagree with. That I think there's, there is a thread that connects all suicides, and that is loss of hope. Um, and you know, hopefully, you might give me opportunity yeah, to we'll talk, about that. <laughs> talk about that later on. You know what I'm talking. Yeah, about. yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the 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 talk clubs again. It is as simple as it sounds. You know, people often say, oh, you, how do you um, measure, you know, mental well-being? You know, we can't do it. It's impossible. You know, it's not impossible. You know, just that this, we always start with the question to, and we go around the group. And the first question is, how are you out of 10 mm. and why? Mm -hmm. Simple as that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the amount of healing that comes as a result of people being able to answer that question honestly in a safe, non-judgmental, confidential environment is incredible it's interesting that approach as well um i can't remember what study i found it was but when talking about um compassionate subjects men respond better to statistics yeah. and numbers yeah. and the females will respond to the emotive compassionate side to it yeah so the out of 10 allows them to kind of rate themselves yeah but then the why really then does dig deeper exactly and gets to the issues that are that are that are that be, yeah, basically, yeah. I, I was talking to uh, <clears throat> a group of business leaders uh, the other day, and again, they were saying, "Well, you know, it, this is all very well, but how do we in the workplace measure well-being? Uh, it's such a complicated area." And no, try that for a start. Let, let's start with that. How are you out of ten, and why? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, that's a pretty good indication. That will give you a, a fairly clear indication of exactly what's going on in somebody's heart and soul, you know. Um, so we could say, and the other thing that <coughs> we call it talk club, but it's basically listening club as well. Yes, that's important. Making sure that those that are talking at the time, you're being listened to so many and getting that out there, getting those thoughts and feelings out there allows you to understand it. I've said all the time, and that's why therapy is so effective. Mm. It's because if those thoughts are up there and locked in your mind, there's no one to challenge them. You're not properly understanding them because you're just bombarded by those thoughts and those thoughts only. When you begin to talk about them, you're then able to understand maybe why you're thinking that way or it's a bit stupid that I'm thinking that way, actually. I don't, I don't feel like that. That's just my mind telling me that I am. And that's what's so important is 
definitely things with anxiety. It's it's the kind of I like to call it the what if dilemma. It's always in your mind, what if this happens or or what if this and if it's only locked up there, you're only surrounded by that. If you start to then talk about it, people can either offer you advice and at least they then know what you're worrying about or just speaking about it, you don't need anyone to tell you the advice. No. You then began to understand it yourself yeah. and you got there yourself. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you might be able to talk it out. Someone hasn't said anything. You're like, thanks. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is that, you know, you recognise when you do start to talk about it that Jack feels the same way. Mm. John feels the same way. Simon feels the same way. You know, that... that it, there may be different problems that they're facing, mm -hmm. and you know, their um, the, the, the difficulties that they're going through can be many and varied. But sometimes there's a lot of common ground when yeah. we start to talk about these mm -hmm. things. So, yeah, it's uh, listening is validating somebody, and we all want to be validated, yeah. don't we? Yeah, um, so obviously, you mentioned hope, so we'll, we'll, we'll get on to the um, the baton of hope if you want to. I'll let you go away with that one. <laughs> um, yeah, we talked before, didn't we, saying, yeah, if I, I need to plug Baton of Hope. <laughs> uh, yeah, ba Baton of Hope is a, a charity, a charitable initiative that we've, we've started. And uh, it came about when I met a great man called Steve Phillip, who, who you've spoken to. Uh, Steve, uh, like me, lost his son, Jordan, uh, to suicide. And we met up uh, here in Sheffield, actually, um, last year and uh, you know we had a lot in common and Steve was kind of further down the road than I was and uh, he gave me a lot of sort of sort of just really friendly advice and just listened and reassured me and uh, there's this thing you know that that when something like that happens in your life it changes the whole course of your life and that virtually everything I do now all my life experiences one way or another, connected to the loss of Ross. Um, and, you know, we have this sort of saying in the community, in the club that we're part of, the club that nobody wants to be a member of, um, I wish I'd never met you, but I'm glad that I did. And, you know. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it, it is. And I've met so many. It's got that sweet, sour yeah. taste to it, really, it, doesn't it? Exactly. And, and both Steve and I know what that means. And uh, so, anyway, baton of hope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we decided, you know, going back to the thing that we, you know, there is this common thread, the loss of hope. And we, we were talking about what could we do, you know, to restore hope. And I wanted to march on Parliament, you know, that minute. <laughs> and, Don't uh, we all? <laughs> Steve had a far more intelligent approach. Than that. <laughs> and, um, yeah, well, anyway, fast forward, we decided that hope, if we could, if we could give somebody like Ross or Jordan or all the hundreds of thousands out there, who have found themselves in the same dark place, some kind of just a, a glimmer of hope, then that would be a great thing. So um, we've actually got physically, or we will get in the new year, a beautiful baton that's been designed looks by... a fabulous. Ah, well, it's been it designed fabulous. by um, a Thomas Light, who they've got a royal warranty. They're wow. goldsmiths and silversmiths uh, to the Queen. They still say it's to the Queen. Um and they've designed this beautiful thing that is heavy with symbolism. Uh, and we're just hoping it will be a kind of, you know, a lightning conductor, a kind of touchstone in a way to symbolize that, you know, in it's life. Light in the darkness, really. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, and that's that, hope. It's, it's, that small shimmer of light that 
a lot of people and certainly myself have been through and you really don't think there's a way out but once you do manage to find a way of getting that help there is that shimmer of light and then once you once you can see that it's very much gradually going towards it and towards it and it's providing it's providing that outlet really it's it's giving it's giving that hope it, it, it is and I, I spoke to somebody once who um, she come to the point where she decided that she was going to take her own life. And she woke up uh, and, you know, sleep hadn't changed anything. She was still determined that this, this was going to be the day. And then a postcard dropped through the letterbox. And it was just that um, postcard that saved her because wow. it was just that little bit of contact from her parents, just that little bit of contact. And in a way, I'm kind of hoping that the baton of hope will be that postcard that, yeah. you know, it will do well, the something. encouragement, the, the symbol, certainly, certainly for me, definitely when you are in that place and when I was planning my suicide, I thought there was no help. Nobody wanted to help. Nobody could help. But it's just being shown an urge because that, again, is just consumes my entire mind. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing else that could tell me any different. It was only until it started to really negatively affect other people. And then that was when I was lucky enough to get the help that I needed. And then, of course, that's when it, you need that time. You've got, it, doesn't just, it doesn't just happen. In it. No, no. And, I think, you know, this is part of the problem, isn't it? You know, if you are severely depressed, your mind is telling you things that are unreal. It's against you. Yeah. It, it, you're, you're actually <coughs> having to mentally battle your own thoughts. Yeah. It's, Which can be, and that's why so many people who are depressed are tired, because that bombardment, it's so difficult to continuously fight and continuously do it. So wearing, it's, isn't it? Yeah, tiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does wear you down. And I think you know, it's two people fighting each other, but those two people are actually the same person. Um, and you know, sometimes one side gets the upper hand, and it can go on for a long time, as you you know. Um, so. Yeah, it's just sort of creating a little bit of hope. We're going to tour around the UK. We're going to um, um, all the capitals, you know, Belfast, Cardiff, Edinburgh, London, uh, plus loads of other cities as well. And we're going to, basically, it's about encouraging an open conversation, normalising conversation around the area of suicide and suicide prevention, mm -hmm. which is the, the, the key thing. You know, trying to give people a little bit of hope, shining a light on best practice out there, because you know that's uh, essential that's that's essential i think it was it was either steve or debbie that was saying that actually a lot of nhs staff aren't trained in suicide prevention no no they are trained in no. it, and that's i mean that's one way to start really mm -hmm. but it's the awareness as well if you haven't been through the system or if you haven't experienced the system for yourself you're naive to it yeah there is no there's no light shining on it. There's no. There's nothing to say what's good and bad about it. It's only those that have been through it. And a lot of the time, when you've been through it yourself, you feel quite vulnerable and exposed. And I was certainly in a place a year ago where there was no way that I thought I'd be sat doing these kind of shows and and, and meeting people like yourself. If someone told me that a year ago, I'd have been like, Yeah. yeah. And how great, you know, to see you here now, you know. Um, looking how you look and sounding how you sound <laughs> and you. being how you are, you, and knowing the the battles that 
that you've been through, the difficult times that you've been through. And that's testament to you, but it's also very important that people should see people like you more often and recognize you are the embodiment of hope. You know, it's people like you who, uh, when people get to see this, they will realize that there is a way out, that, you know, there's a reason to stay. There is a reason to, to hope. So shining a light on best practice is extremely important um, because there is some very good practice out there. Yes. Yeah. However, I think we have to confront and we have to challenge the reality that the mental health provision in this country, by and large, is woeful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, particularly, you know, at, at state level. Mm-hmm. It is woeful. And I haven't met many people at all, uh, you know, in the health service, outside the health service, who wouldn't agree with that. The amount of clinicians that I've spoken to, nurses, doctors, psychiatrists, who all accept that that is the case. There are some fantastic, hard-working, underpaid oh, yes. people working in the mental health services. But the system is glacial, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it's not just the health service. It goes through a lot of the sort of key agencies, and, uh, authorities, like the police, for example, taking away our Ross's farewell letter. That police officer didn't wake up that morning and think, I'm going to make the life of a bereaved family even harder. Not at all. He was sympathetic. He was compassionate. But when it came to trying to get that letter, the system did the not in process. That's how that's how it was designed. <laughs> yeah, that's literally how it's designed. Yeah, and we have to look at these things. You know, mm. you know, we are a com- compassionate nation in very many ways. You know, and the health service is fantastic. But if ever I needed help in my life, you know, nothing that's ever hurt me in my life came close to that moment, that day. Nothing, and then to know that there was. Some kind of explanation, some kind of, I don't know, we were having circular conversations just going through our minds about all the usual stuff, you know. So you the, hadn't seen the letter, had you? No, we knew that so it was, you knew that the letter we knew existed. it had been taken away. It was 12 pages long. Jesus. And he wrote to each one of us in turn, including his little son, Charlie, uh, asking him to be brave and to be anything that he wanted to be. And... We had to plead to get the letter. And um, again, there was no anger and there still isn't. You know, we're too full of love for us to, to, to be angry. Mm. Um, and but that's, you shouldn't have been put in that situation. No, no. The, the, just shouldn't. No, the police computer system wasn't speaking to the coroner's office computer system. And this is, we've got to get this right. Yeah. You know, people shouldn't have to go through the, these things. Uh, and I... You know, I really understand the challenges that the police face. And let's not forget that police officers regularly have to go into a situation to deal with, with these things. And that's not easy either. And I completely appreciate that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, there is, yeah, it, the, the passion and motivation to get us to a place that it's not, I can't say satisfied because I wish it wasn't, I wish it wasn't a thing, but to be able to support people like yourself going through that sort of thing and not having it there. We're in 2022. We're not living in the 1950s anymore. We're in a very modern environment. The technology is there. Do you think, where do you think it starts? Is it government? 
Um, Government I, policy, is it? Well, in a way, we've all got responsibility. You know, whether you're at the highest level of government formulating suicide prevention strategy, or if it's just me and you sending a text to our mates saying, how are you really? You know, how are, how are you out of 10, maybe? Um, you know, we've all got responsibility. But I have to say, and this saddens me, that, you know, we're fighting, it's, it's, we've got a group of people now around Baton of Hope, and we're fighting a vigorous campaign, and we're struggling to attract political interest. Yeah. And I, I, I want to understand why that is. You know, the cynic in me might say that there's not many votes in it, they might think, I don't know. Um, but for some reason, we just don't seem to have got to grips with, with the importance of mental health. You know, you break your finger, you can go to the uh, A&E department here in the city and get it seen to you. might have to wait a few hours, but you'll get it seen to today. You go there with a broken mind, what I call cancer of the mind, uh, which can often be terminal, mm -hmm. then you're turned away and put on a six-month waiting list. Where's the sense in that? Yeah. There is no health without mental health. Back to Tyson Fury. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. There is no mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And it, mental health is as is important as physical health. Of course If you don't is. have your mental health, you can't look after your physical health, and very often yeah. your physical health deteriorates a lot. That's why you eat too much or too little. You don't really exercise. You are very tired. That kind of that's tied in because your mind isn't operating right. No. It's 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 not it's it's not okay. No, no, no. And some people think that we're fairly advanced. Well, let me just ask people uh, watching this or listening to it um, a question: If you were suffering with depression, would you tell your line manager, "I need to take time off because I've got depression"? And to be honest, I have difficulty answering that question, even from my perspective. And I think until such times that we can pick up the phone to our line manager and say, I'm depressed, I need to sort of take time off, then, you know, there's a lot to do. A newspaper headline the other day, a, a Conservative MP, um, William Ragg, um, said that he uh, was... Admitted. Yeah. Yeah. He said admitted. The, the you headline to admit No, that. why? I wouldn't admit to having a chest infection. Yeah. I wouldn't admit to having a sore throat. Why should I admit to, admit. to having had depression? I have had depression. You know, well, it's the common cold of mental illness. You know, hey, guys, there's a lot of it out there. You know, let's start talking about it properly. And that will then, when we talk about it, and this is what I say about normalising the conversation, it may not be beneficial to someone who isn't mentally healthy, but it initiates and facilitates for someone that may not be in that position and allows them to feel as though it's okay and, it, and they can talk about it. Yeah, and nobody's immune. No. You know, we're all susceptible to one degree or another. And you may have lived a long life and never suffered from depression, but that doesn't mean to say that you never will. Mm. You know, it can affect any one of us. At uh, any point in our lives as Absolutely, well. absolutely. So it's just, you know, when I talk about turning the prison, I think that's one area where the prison really needs to be turned around yeah. uh, 360 degrees and, you know, uh, have a totally different outlook. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Such a riveting conversation. It's something that I just love so much. Um, I think for the benefit of uh, those that have been in your position and are in your position, um, 
what advice would you give to those that have been bereaved by suicide that of course unfortunately you've had to experience is that is there specific things that have helped um one one thing that certainly helped me and i can only really speak for myself and it's a difficult question because in some ways you know uh, people ask me, you know, what to look out for with their own children. And, and there's some experience that I can pass on, but I always say I didn't save my son. You know, I, I, I couldn't save my son. So why are you asking me? Um, but in terms of other bereaved parents, uh, one thing that's really helped me is to help try to help other people. Um, and I would recommend it for anybody who, you know, is going through difficult uh, difficult circumstances. It doesn't have to be people who are going through your circumstances necessarily. But if you can sort of reach out a, a, a hand, I'm going to start bursting in song in a minute. But, uh, but if you can reach out a hand to uh, somebody else, you know, it... it it's contagious as well, isn't it? It is. That, that help. It is. I, I, I can't speak for everyone. But I personally believe that helping other people rarely ever makes you feel worse. Yeah, no. If not, never. Yeah. It, it, it actually, it's just invigorating. It, it gives you a sense of purpose, really, doesn't it? It does, you know. And, you know, like Talk Club, for example, and some of the people I've got to know through Baton of Hope are developing a real interest in their lives. And it's sort of, you know, their narrative. Um, you know, occupies my mind quite a lot, and and that's a good thing because otherwise, you know, I, I, I find it very difficult to sort of take myself away from the grief um, sometimes. And, and one of the side effects for me, anyways, is a kind of brain fog, and you know, keep getting. But even in conversation, you've done very well to keep <laughs> keep you engaged. <laughs> yeah. Well, not that. No, keep, keep me on track. On you, track. You, yeah, you, that's you, it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, not engaged. Just, sorry. Get <laughs> yeah. off with the fairy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but you see, I've gone now. Um, yeah, it's just sort of there's something else out there that takes you out of yourself, and and the other thing is it, it is this sort of you know recognition that. There, there is so much sort of out there in the world uh, that, that affects people very badly, you know, whether it's mental health or um, uh, in general or bereavement or, you know, whatever it is. There are so many people out there, uh, addictions, and um, I've got to know some fantastic people who, had I not had the opportunity to speak to them, I probably would have been, well, not probably, I would have been far more judgmental of them uh, than I am now. And hearing their stories, all that judgmentalism, if that's a word, has right, drifted away. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's gone. And I sometimes say to Ross in my conversations, I sometimes, you know, suicide is never the right thing. It's, it's never, ever the right thing. Um, but a kind of, in a way, give thanks to Ross for opening my eyes to um, this less judgmental, hopefully more compassionate world that I'm in now. I get compassion. I understand what it means at, at the core. It doesn't always make me the most compassionate person, probably, but I do understand it. Yeah. You know. yeah. It's um, been an absolutely fabulous conversation, Mike, and I can't thank you enough. Um, and it's so almost time to finish. Yeah. Uh, so the last thing we finish on is um, if you have one mindful technique that you employ uh, that 
you think others could try, um, what would that be? Uh, this probably isn't the kind of answer that people expect, I don't know, but um, I think it's listening. You know, as I've said earlier, I talk a lot, you know, too much, and I know that. Um, but sometimes when you listen, that's good. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a really sort of, um, again, it goes back to the point that I just sort of made earlier. It is in itself a kind of mindfulness mm. because, you know, it, it's learning as well, though. It's, listening is learning and it, it's hearing and it's understanding. Yeah, and, it's, and it releases you. You know, it kind of releases you because you find yourself, um, and this is one of the great things about, <coughs> excuse me, about journalism. So many, you know, I've met so many inspiring people along the way. Great, great people who, against all of the odds, have been fighting for something that they believe in. And I've always kind of been drawn to people like that, you know, who, in some cases, have spent their lives fighting for a, 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 a cause, you yeah. know, realizing that, that there's a, a cause to be championed out there in, in the world. Um, so yeah, yeah, listening to people, I would say. I know, you know, that maybe that's in some ways the opposite of mindfulness, but it works for me. So. That's absolutely, absolutely fabulous. And uh, again, thank you so much for coming thank on. You. Thank you so Thanks. much. It's been really, really, really brilliant. Yeah. Um, everyone, look out for the Battle of Hope, of course, which is coming next next year. Is next it? Year, is that right? Yeah. www.battenofhopeuk.org. Lovely. Fantastic. Um, thank you all again for watching and listening and uh, we'll see you next time on Sully's Open Conversation. Bye. Bye.